Obadiah, and it's only one chapter, one, 21 verses within this brief book of prophecy. And we'll read actually verses 1 and 21. So we'll read the first and the last verse tonight. And we're kind of doing an overview of the book, but yet I want us to see an important truth here that we'll point out in a few moments. And so the book of Obadiah, verse 1, The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Now look at verse 21. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah is a, not only a short book, in reality it's the shortest of the Old Testament prophets. It's one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. As I previously mentioned throughout our study of other books within this group referred to as the minor prophets, this categorization has nothing to do with the content within the books themselves or lack of content within the books but rather the categorization is in relation to the brevity of the books. And so minor and major prophets do not have anything to do with the matter of content within the different books, but rather the brevity or the length of the books is is why they are categorized as such. Referring to brevity, uh, as I mentioned, the book of Obadiah is the shortest book within the Old Testament consisting of only 21 verses. Nonetheless, as we will discover and have previously in other studies, the prophecy remains of tremendous significance. There's a reason this book is included in the canon of Scripture, of course, that it was acknowledged to be Scripture, and also the importance it is therein. The writer, let's begin looking at the writer of the book of Obadiah. As is commonly the case, this book is believed to be named after the writer himself, and while there is not a lot of information about Obadiah provided in Scripture, the name Obadiah is mentioned in 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And what's more is the meaning of the name itself. So uh, again, and it is believed that the, the mentions of these would be the same Obadiah. That is one, at least one belief that that is true. And the meaning of the name Obadiah, it means worshiper of Yahweh or God or servant of Yahweh or God. And the meaning of this name was important not only in relation to the message of the prophecy, but it also helps us to better understand the basis or the foundation of genuine worship or service to God. And I I say that for a reason. I want to kind of break this down a little bit. Now, you've heard me say things along these lines before, but I want you to see that even in relation to the name. Because I told you the name means worshiper of Yahweh or of God or servant of Yahweh or God. Now, when we say worshiper or servant, it's not saying either or. It is saying and or. And so it's saying that these are really the same thing, but they're defined in two different manners or described in two different manners. That being said, within the scriptures, we find the word service is used to indicate and or define the worship of God. Two examples of this are found in the, book of, the books of Romans and Hebrews. For example, in Romans 12.1, and you've heard me mention this many times, you know the verse. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do you remember what those two words mean? 
Does anyone have any remembrance of that? Any, can, you recoll, uh, can you have any recollection of that at all? Of, of uh, reasonable service. Service is worship. It's the ministry of worship or worship. But genuine or, or reasonable is genuine. It is genuine worship. Genuine. So when he says reasonable service, I've often said to you um, that anything less or else is unreasonable. So he's saying that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, your genuine Worship, our genuine service of worship, our ministry of, of worship. It could also be referred to as divine service of worship. In Hebrews 9.1, the scripture says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of, of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. The term ordinances of divine service means commandment or requirement of worship. So ordinances would be commandment or requirement, and then service is worship. So here you find in both of these examples, both in Romans and Hebrews, the word worship is not mentioned at all, but the word service is. But the word service translated uh, is translated from that which means worship. And so this is your reasonable service. It's not just referring to something you are doing as in some outward action. As a matter of fact, Romans 12 actually speaks contrary to that altogether because it says we present our bodies a living sacrifice. It doesn't say just live your life a certain way in which looks like God would be happy with it. No, we are presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. It doesn't say just put on some facade or just put on really good effort so you can try to do what's right. No, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your genuine Worship, which is your reasonable service. And so your genuine worship of God, again, is not dictated or determined by what takes place as you simply are only gather with the body of Christ as the church, but it is individually. By the way, let me throw this out too, because this is very important in relation to body theology or what theologically would be referred to as ecclesiology um, in systematic theology, for instance. But when you look at Body theology, I've told you, and you should be able to answer this. What is the purpose of the gathered body? Edification. Many people today would, would say, they wouldn't say that. Most, in fact, I would say, by large, who gather in, in bodies together as what is seen to be the visible church of the Lord Jesus tonight or on Sundays, if you were to ask or take a poll, why do we come together? I think you would find there'd be two answers predominantly given, and edification would not be one of them. Maybe three answers, but edification would not be one of them. Do you know what those three would probably be? Praise, worship, fellowship. Yep. So y'all answered them correctly. I heard all of them. Praise, worship, and fellowship. Now, do we praise as we gather together? Yes. Do we worship as we gather together? Well, if we understand what biblical worship is and we are submissive to the Spirit of God working in us as we would edify one another, then yes, worship because we are being obedient to God, serving God as He is required. And then do we fellowship together as we gather? Well, we should. It doesn't always take place as it should, but we should fellowship together as we come together as a body of Christ. But let me show you something too. I can praise the Lord when I'm by myself. 
I can worship the Lord when I'm by myself. Now, I cannot fellowship with other people while I'm by myself, but I can fellowship with the Lord while I'm by myself. But here's what I cannot do by myself ever. I cannot edify the body by myself. So do you see the importance of the gathering of the body? People say, I can worship wherever I want. Well, I mean, their definition of worship is probably skewed if they make that statement in that type of a spirit. But yet I would say to you, the fact still remains that I can worship alone, meaning when I'm alone, I can worship God. I can submit myself to him in service unto him. I can also praise the Lord when I'm alone. No one else has to be around for me to honestly genuinely praise him and i can have fellowship with him i do have fellowship with him whether you're present or not but i cannot edify the body of christ without being gathered with the body of christ hence the importance of the purpose of gathering is that of edification so when you come to this matter of of service or worship as defined in scripture the word service meaning that of worship or ministry of worship the term ordinance of divine service as i mentioned is that commandment or requirement of Worship. And so the importance of the meaning of the name Obadiah, which again, if I'll remind you once more what it actually means, worshiper of God or servant of God and or servant of God. So when it comes to the name Obadiah in relation to the prophecy in the, in, that is written, it is, we are reminded that it is this truth that it is God alone who is worthy of our service, of our worship, For God's kingdom will come to be and forever remain when all other kingdoms of men have fallen as indicated in the final statement of this prophecy. Back to verse 21. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's look at the date of the book of Obadiah. Now there's no absolute way to determine when Obadiah was written, seeing that there is no king named or other individuals who could historically be referenced. It is believed that the book was possibly written sometime between 587 and 500 B.C., which would place the writing during the time of the uh, captivity, one of the captivities, of course, of the children of Israel. To provide you a better understanding of when this was, I will again review with you ten significant time periods of Israel's history, which are important to remember. You have first the pre-patriarchal period, And this period began with creation and extended through the time of the life of Job. This is not to be confused with the canonical placement of the book of Job. Remember something, Job was believed to be the first book that was ever actually written, and Job would have have lived prior to his canonical placement as far as the book is concerned. He would have been early, early on in the creation of the world. And so... We can't confuse the placement of the book with Job's actual time of his life. Second, the patriarchal period. This period began with Abraham in Genesis 12 and extended through the life of Joseph in Genesis 50. And this time, as as we covered some time back um, in our study of Genesis, included Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, of course. Then you have the third period of Israel's history that is significant, which is the exodus from Egypt. This period began shortly after the death of Joseph, as you recall, in Exodus 1, 8 through 14. And this period of time included the slavery of the children of Israel, the life and call of Moses, the plagues in Egypt, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and the wilderness journey of the children of Israel, those 40 years in which they wandered through the wilderness. Then number four, you have the conquest. This time period begins with the death of Moses, 
and the rise of Joshua as the leader of the children of Israel, as indicated in the book of Joshua. During this period of time, Israel would have crossed the Jordan into the promised land. They celebrated the first Passover during this time. They defeated Jericho during this time. They defeated Ai during this time. They conquered several nations as they conquered and possessed the land. Remember, God had given them this land. And if you recall with me, during the time of Moses, the people murmured and complained. They sent spies in, if you recall. Twelve spies went in, and twelve came back with ten saying, We cannot do this. This is impossible feat. While Caleb and Joshua came back and said, The Lord is able to deliver us, deliver them into our hands. So this is something we can do. And as you recall, then for all this time, for the years, the children of Israel continued in the wilderness for 40 so years. And then, of course, Joshua and Caleb both, spared by God, then go into the promised land. And once they entered into the promised land, Moses having died, and God buried Moses, if you recall, and then Joshua leads the people. And in leading the people, you remember that God then told them to conquer all these nations, to go in and, and take the land. It was their land to possess. And so they went in, there were struggles and fights along the way, but God was faithful, if you recall, to give them the land as they were obedient to him, as they would be submissive to him, and just simply believe him, as did Caleb and Joshua, uh, before they even entered into the promised land. This time period ends, that is the conquest, with Joshua's death. Then you have the time of the judges. The time of the judges begins with Joshua's death and ends with Samuel. It was Samuel who, who, if you remember, anointed Saul as the first king of Israel, meaning the king that the people called for. And it was also Samuel who who anointed David as king, which, of course, was God's appointment for king of Israel. Then you're number six, you have the United Kingdom. While under Saul, David, and Solomon, Jerusalem, that is the children of Israel, existed as one kingdom, or the period known as the United Kingdom. Yet after Solomon's death, the kingdom was torn apart. This brought about the time known as the divided kingdom. And the divided kingdom around 931 to 930 BC, the kingdom was divided after Solomon's death is when this happened. 1 Kings 12, 1 through 21, you find a record of that. There was the northern kingdom, which of course consisted of, which was Israel, consisting of the ten tribes, which would have been Reuben, Simeon, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And then there was the, oh, and Jeroboam, by the way, became king of Israel, the southern kingdom, uh, which, or the northern kingdom, I'm sorry. And then the southern kingdom was Judah, but it consisted of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Rehoboam, not to be confused with Jeroboam, Solomon's son became king of the southern kingdom, which would have been Judah and Benjamin. Then you come to the eighth period of time in Israel's history that is of significance, and that is the Assyrian exile. The first invasion of the northern kingdom, 2 Kings 15, verse 29, and the second invasion of the northern kingdom, the first invasion was 2 Kings 15, 29. The second, I'm sorry, the first, the second was of the northern kingdom was 2 Kings 17, 1 through 6. Then number nine, you have the Babylonian captivity. Daniel 9, 1, or Daniel 1, I'm sorry, 1 and 2. Then number 10, you have the return from exile. This is where the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi have their place in Israel's history. Ezra 1, 1 through 3, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 6, and Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. And so you find that these are the 10, 10 major periods or time periods. There's other things that could be mentioned, and many things happen to fill in the blanks that are present within these 10 time periods 
that I have given you. But yet these ten time periods mark ten significant periods within the history of Israel, included including the united and divided kingdom, the attacks or the, uh, when they were in exile, when they were brought back out of exile. And so you find that during the time of the Babylonian captivity would have been somewhere along that time, in that time frame, is when you would have seen the book of Obadiah to have been written. And so it falls in, in the latter part there of Israel's of course, history. Because remember, if it's true that it was written from the 579 to 500 BC, how many years were there of silence? 400 years of silence at the time of Christ. So this is coming near the end of the recorded history, if you will, of Israel's, uh, of Israel's past that we have in the scriptures. Because you have just a very short time, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, of course, ushering in those 400 years of science, silence. And by the way, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, remember, are contemporaries one of the other. You'll find where they were Ezra. And one of the astounding things about that, if you recall, is that Ezra, again, was sent by the Lord to rebuild the temple that the worship of God, the glory of God among his people were restored through his worship. And then Nehemiah was sent back in the second wave coming out of exile, if you will, uh, some years later, to rebuild the wall, which of course was a testimony of the glory of God being restored among his people within the world, because the world would see that wall and they would know that God was with his people. And then you find that Malachi being one of their contemporaries in the book of Malachi, you find while in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people set aside large portions of the day in which they would they would read scripture, they would all gather and they would read publicly read the scriptures, then they would spend a portion of the day in confession unto God. I mean, literally, large portions of their day were in reading scripture and confession. But you have to remember, these people have been in exile for these years, which means that they had not experienced the worship of God. In fact, one of the scriptures make mention of that in one of the books, Ezra and Nehemiah, concerning the fact that the people had not had this opportunity since the days of Joshua. It was like they had not been able to do what they were doing uh, in this capacity. And so the point being that, that it was, it was a, a, a refreshing and renewing manner, matter for them. And so they were, they were taken by this and enamored, and they were giving themselves over to the worship of God, to the service of God. But then comes Malachi. And Malachi, of course, is testifying of how their hearts are turned from the Lord. And though they're involved in all this outward action and service, yet in the reality they were not at all committed unto the Lord and submissive to Him in heart. And so during that short amount of time, being contemporaries one or the other, you see a drastic turn or a falling away, if you will, of the people concerning their intent and heart for the Lord. But in Obadiah, you find that this takes place again during that Babylonian captivity, during that time frame. And so again, it's near the end of the of the recorded history of Israel in the Old Testament, that is, as we have it. So let's look at the theme of the book then. What is the theme of the book of Obadiah? What is its purpose? Or its theme, we'll get to its purpose in a moment. The theme of the book of Obadiah is, you'll read, as we didn't read all the verses this evening, but a part of the significance of the book is realized in its concentrated focus on the judgment declared against Edom. Now who is Edom? Esau's people, Esau's lineage. And it's rather unusual to find a book of prophecy in which the entirety of the judgment pronounced is on one foreign people. Now, it's interesting. You will find other books of the Bible, such as Hosea, in which the judgment of God is being largely pronounced upon whom? Judah. 
we've studied through Hosea. Do you not remember? I know it's been a little bit of time. In Hosea, the judgment of God was predominantly pronounced upon one people, which were? His people, Israel, the Jews. Remember Hosea? Do we need to go back and start over in Hosea? Now, remember Hosea? What is the whole message there? Don't you recall where Hosea is told to go take a wife of whoredoms, which is Gomer, and the Lord says, oh, then the people of Israel, you've committed whoredom against me. Don't you remember? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to his people. And the large, the, the majority of that book is dedicated or concentrated on God's judgment or his correction and his, his chastening of his own people. But you don't find many books in which you'll find that there is a people outside of his people which are actually being targeted, largely concentrated, uh, concentrated judgment upon a specific group of people. Many times it's, it's multiple nations or multiple people or Gentiles in general, but not one particular people. But here you find the judgment is concentrated and pronounced upon Edom. And it is Edom, Esau's offspring, upon which the Lord's judgment is pronounced. Ellie Cooper commented, Whereas many prophetic books contain prophecies against foreign nations, the entire book of Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. Its components are typical of other prophecies against foreign nations, plural. The New American Commentary, commentary further commented concerning the similarity of the components of the prophecy with that of other books, in saying, in, in relation to what had just been stated by Cooper, one, naming the enemy nation, and you find that to be true in verse 1. Let's look. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a rumor from the Lord, an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Two, warning about the coming doom of the enemy nation, verses 2 through 18. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of, of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his 
that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return unto thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and they shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. So all of those verses, 2 through 18, are all concerning God's precise, exact judgment upon Edom. Then third, you see the Lord's intervention and punishment of the enemy, and that's throughout the entirety of the book. Then fourth, Israel's future ascendancy over the enemy. Look at verses 19 through 21. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Seraphad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So here you have an entire book committed to the judgment of the people of Edom or Esau. Now let's consider this for a moment. You say, well, why was God so angry against Esau? Why was God so mad? Why was God so intent on destroying Esau? Well, Malachi, actually, let's do something, because this is very interesting, and I just want to make a point here. In Romans chapter 9, which we have studied in depth, of course, but go to Romans chapter 9 for a moment, and let me show you something here that a lot of people do not make the connection with, which is imperative that we do. In Romans chapter 9, um, let's just read through the first several verses here. We won't read the whole chapter. My point is to show you one specific truth out of this. Paul says, I say the, the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost. Now remember, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are what are referred to as parenthetical chapters within Paul's epistle of Romans. And what that means is that Paul is ex- doing something that he doesn't do in any other book in this capacity. He's really bearing out his heart concerning his people Israel. And he's, he's showing us things within this book, uh, within 9, 10, and 11, specifically concerning his burden and grief over Israel, um, concerning his confidence that God's purposes will still be fulfilled. And so he, he outlines all of these things in these th- three chapters. But notice what he says in verse 2. Here you see his grief and sorrow, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Then verse 3, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God. Service, go, guess what that word service means there? It is that of the ministry of worship, just like in Hebrews and just like in Romans as well. And the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God hath not taken effect, or hath taken none effect, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now, again, this is very clearly saying that just because someone was of the lineage of Israel did not make them part of the promise, the true people of Israel. And he goes on in verse 7 to explain that further. In fact, notice verse 6 ends with a colon. 
You remember what I've told you about colons in English grammar? How that a colon is meant to join two independent clauses in which the second clause explains the first clause. Let's read verse 6 again. I'm sorry, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. Yes, again. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Then he explains it in verse 7. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also hath conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now let me stop here for a moment because this is very important in relation to what we're studying in Obadiah as we begin this study. I just read to you what God said about his judgment upon Edom. I just read to you how he tells them they're going to be utterly destroyed. Everything they have is going to be taken away. Did you not read that with me? And now while people will constantly always say about God's love and God loves everybody and all this stuff that they try to confess that Scripture does not teach us at all. Here you find where the Scripture says that God hated Esau. Now, the argument will often be this, and I just want to show this to you, bring this out. The argument will often be, well, that's like when Jesus said, I believe it's in Matthew, except you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. No, that's not saying the same thing. Of course, Jesus is not commanding us to have hatred towards our parents. What he is saying is, that the love that you have for me compared to the love you have for anyone else, even the most love that you may have for another, is going to be compared to, as that of hatred compared to the love you have for me. You must be totally devoted to me, not to your family, not committed to them, but to me. Now, how is that different from what's being stated here in Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated? Well, first of all, this is a quote. Notice what he says, as it is written... So that's a quote from the Old Testament, which means we can go back to the Old Testament to see what's actually being said. Now, this quote is not taken out of Obadiah, but this quote is taken out of Malachi. So let's turn to Malachi for just a moment. And if you look at Malachi chapter 1. Let's read together. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein is thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau. Okay, here we have it. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This is the quote. But let's see what this hatred actually is, because some would claim, oh, well, that just means that he loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. Well, no, duh. He said he loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's pretty clear, I would think but yet not in the context by which many would claim it to be. Because let's look at what this hatred actually looks like. So let's look at verse 3. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down and they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation Forever. If someone ever tells you, well, that just means that God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. Yeah, quite obviously. 
Because he says when it, the quote is taken in, Mal, in Romans 9, the quote is taken from Malachi 1, and there you find the description of this hatred that God had for them. They're going to say, oh, we'll build up. And God says, you build up, I'm going to tear it down. And this is going to be the testimony about you. You are the people of wickedness, and the Lord has indignation against you forever. Hatred here is much stronger than lesser love. And that needs to be understood. I mean, the definitions are given to us right here in the text, the description. And so when you come to Obadiah, here Edom is, here Esau's offspring are, and the scriptures say that God is going to destroy them, and there'll be nothing left. And then in Malachi's day, that's exactly what you find has happened. He's saying, oh, Edom's destroyed. And every time they try to build up, God just wipes them out and tears them down. And the testimony is, God has indignation against his people Always and forever. Now, the question again would arise. Well, why would God have such a hatred toward Esau? Why would he even be described as such a manner in the Scriptures? Well, let's go back to Romans for just a second, just to give a little bit more clarity on this, just so you can see it yourself. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 11. For the children, Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, so neither one had yet been born, neither having done any good or evil. So you can't claim that God hated Esau because of the evil Esau would do. By the way, let me stop you for just a moment. Was Jacob not a conniving, deceitful man? Esau did not deceive his father, Isaac. Who did? Jacob. Who is it who was deceiving the hill catcher by name? Jacob. The tripper-upper, right? The man who would trip up others, the man who deceived his own brother, the man who deceived his own father. This is Jacob. Jacob was wicked. You have to see that. And it says, neither one having done good or evil, and here's the reason. It's just this simple. That the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, which was contrary to Jewish tradition and custom. Because the younger should have served the elder. As it is written in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So, this book of judgment against Edom, you have to understand something. It is rightly deserved. But here's the reality of it where the tables turn, and this was a judgment totally upon Jacob and his offspring, it would have just as rightly have been deserved. Esau did not deserve judgment any more than Jacob deserved judgment. You need to never forget that. Neither one having done good or evil. It wasn't Jacob was good and Esau was evil. They were both wicked. But God's purpose was that he would use Jacob to become his people, and he loved Jacob while he hated Esau. And hatred here is, again, not, well, I'll just choose Jacob over Esau and let Jacob be my, my, my seed, you know, and that from whom Christ would be born, while Esau just goes on. No, it says, I'll destroy this people, Edom, and tear them down, and leave their heritage as a waste. Look, that, that, listen, that is not simply a lesser love, as many people would try to define it. This is God saying this, the one who creates life, the one who created all that is, saying, I will tear them down, and their testimony of this people will be, these are the ones whom God has indignation against forever. 
Yes. Neither one having done good or evil, neither one being born. He did, but that had nothing to do with God's purpose. That's what the scripture is saying. Neither one had been born, neither one having done good or evil, that the purpose of God, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have loved, Esau have I hated. So is that all part of how it unfolded? Yes, but that has nothing to do. Because if you were going to say that, for instance, just to, to, to be the devil's advocate, so to speak, if you're going to say that, for instance, then why not bring up that prior or that Jacob himself was deceived his brother into doing so. It was Jacob who instigated this in deception, not Esau who just, just fraudulent. I mean, he did, he did frivolously give away his birthright, but yet it was Jacob who deceived him and, and tempted him to do this. And then furthermore, Isaac would not have followed through with this had all that not happened and had not Jacob then deceived his, his father into blessing him. But all of that was according to God's purpose and plan. And all that preceded anything they had done. And that's what Romans 9 is saying so clearly. So all that plays into it as it unfolded in time, yes, but not according to God's hatred of Esau or anything else. Because if God had a reason to hate, to hate surely he could have hated Jacob for being deceptive and deceiving and lying, and he was terrible. Jacob, well, part of it, of course, yes. He had to be transformed, and God did transform him. And God still showed mercy to Esau during Esau's days without question. There was still a merciful part of uh, a mercy received by Esau in that respect. But Edom and Esau, the people, the Scripture says that, that God... God hated. And I just wanted to show you what Scripture actually says about that, because this is just something that people try to say, oh, that's not what it means. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it means, because that's what Scripture defines it as when you see the terminology that is used. So let's go further now. And that, look, that is, all that is very important in relation to this book, because verse 2 to verse 18 is all about what? Verse 1, you find the introduction to the book. Verse 2, is through verse 18, then you have 19, 20, and 21. So you have verse 1, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21. Four out of 21 verses are somewhat exempt from this to a degree, but 2 through 18 are all about what? God's judgment upon Edom. That's what this is about. So let's look at the purpose of the book of Obadiah. As is my custom to do when providing an overview of a new book, which we are beginning to study, I want to point out how the prophecy of Obadiah, the shortest Old Testament book, fits into the big picture of Scripture. First, I must again address the matter, a matter of defining the overall picture or the big picture of Scripture. To summarize it very briefly, the big picture of Scripture is the revelation of God's glory through His eternal redemptive purpose in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question remains, how does such a book pronouncing judgment on Edom fit into this message of the big picture of Scripture? First, while there are enemies of God and His truth, God's purpose will not be frustrated. God had a purpose. Romans 9 tells us this. All Scripture tells us this. What was the purpose of God? Well, He's going to reveal His glory, but how does that glory reveal it? I just gave this to you. How, is, how does He reveal His glory? Through redemption in Jesus Christ. Because the, did not we read just Sunday, I believe it was, that it's through the church that the Lord will receive glory, world without end, amen. 
How does the church give glory to God? Because of Christ dwelling within the church, redeeming the church. And so all through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, Christ is that primary person of Scripture. The truth, primary truth is God's eternal redemptive purposes. And the primary purpose is the revelation of God's glory. And that is accomplished through redemption in Jesus Christ. That's clearly understood, I believe, in Scripture. So, as we consider God's purpose not being frustrated, what was his purpose concerning Jacob? God was going to use Jacob to be the one who would become Israel, by which the seed, Christ, would be born through that lineage, right? It was not to use Esau, it was to use Jacob. Despite Edom, despite the enemy of Jacob, because really Edom became the enemy of Jacob, the enemy of Israel, and despite Esau being the enemy of Israel and his offspring being that enemy, God's plan will not be frustrated. Everything was going against, think about this for a moment, from the very beginning in the sense of the declaration, the elder shall serve the younger, that, everything goes against that in society. Everything went against that in Jewish custom and tradition. So from the very beginning, there was opposition against God's purpose and plan because that was not the normal way that things would be. But God's plan will not be frustrated. Second, God is righteous. And all those who reject his truth will not escape his righteous judgment. God is righteous. And there is a righteous judgment of God. And Edom definitely saw that. Third, although so many people groups throughout time have attempted to establish their own kingdoms, there is only one kingdom which will stand and endure, the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Obadiah verse 1. Let's look at that again and then verse 21. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. Then verse 21. And Savior shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The message of Obadiah, while one of judgment against Edom, is also one of God's faithfulness to fulfill his righteous plan as he will establish his eternal kingdom. Nothing is going to frustrate the purpose and plan of God. God will accomplish exactly what he set out to do. You have to remember something. We live in what we refer to as time. Time, we pass through time. Time passes on, continues on. But God does not live inside of that. We have to remember that. He inserted himself within time when Christ was manifested in the flesh in the fullness of time. God sending his own son in the likeness of of sinful flesh. Enforce sin, condemn sin in the flesh. We know that, that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. But we must also recognize that God does not live or dwell or nor is bound by time. And so while we pass through time, we see opposition, we see the uh, enemy, we see attacks against the, against the cross, against the gospel, against the Lord Jesus, against the church, against believers. We see all these things and we see We see how it would appear to be at times that evil seems to just abound. But God does not dwell and live in that. The righteous will be preserved and the wicked will be judged. In fact, as far as God's concerned, it's already done. It's just time and time that unfolds. Such as with Jacob and Esau. Neither one having done good or evil, neither one yet being born, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So God had determined he was going to use Jacob He loved Jacob, he was going to use Jacob, and that was all according to his purpose, all according to his plan. In time, all of that unfolded, but it was all settled in eternity that God was going to do this. 
And so the judgment pronounced upon Edom in Obadiah, this concentrated judgment and declaration of judgment, is righteous. God is righteous. And, but again, I want to remind you, because let us, let, us not get, let us not misunderstand this truth. Had God declared the same judgment upon Israel, upon Jacob, he would be just and righteous to do so. Jacob does not deserve God's mercy or grace any more than Esau did. And Esau did not deserve God's judgment and wrath any more so than Jacob did. And yet God was gracious and merciful in this. Why do I say that? Because let's be mindful of something. While we understand that there is a world that is under the wrath of God and knows nothing of the love of God apart from Jesus Christ, remember something. People who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ do not know God's love. That's all there is to it. The only way you know God's love is in the person of Christ. To reject Christ is to reject the love of God. And so we look on people that are wicked, especially people that are obstinately wicked, if you will. I mean, the ones who are just perverse or the ones who just boast and, and magnify their wickedness. And we think about how they are so ungodly and how they deserve judgment and they deserve wrath and they deserve punishment. And so they do. But let me remind you, they don't deserve it any more so than any of us. And if we have received the favor and kindness and goodness of God as He's given in Jesus Christ, then let us be thankful and humble and rejoice in such grace and mercy. And let us be mindful that it is only because of grace, that which we could not merit and earn, that we have received such mercy and know the love of God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for, again for your word.